So why am I skeptical of reparations? And why am I only sympathetic toward a relatively small reparations payout? 1. Part of the disparity we see today between blacks and whites is a result of black behavior. 2. The ideal form of reparation is the actual perpetrator paying the actual victim. That isn't possible here. 3. The consequences of slavery for a modern descendant of slaves may actually be positive compared to living in poor and dysfunctional Africa. 4. Americans didn't invent slavery, nor did they enslave free peoples. Americans took part in an institution that was accepted around the world and throughout time. Then, after a few hundred years, Americans ended it. 5. Some reparations are arguably already paid through programs targeted based on race. 6. Nothing is free, especially not trillions of dollars in reparations, and paying for this may be too costly. These six mitigations make me against a huge reparations payment. A larger payment is usually based on a few different ideas. The size of the current black-white wealth gap, the interest or inflation-adjusted value of 40 acres and a mule, or the interest or inflation-adjusted pay slaves should have received. While not every mitigation applies equally to each of these bases for a massive reparations payout, some apply to each. The 40 acres and a mule argument seems the weakest to me because reparations are for the moral debt owed for slavery and discrimination, not for an idea a general and a secretary of war had that was later overruled. 1. Part of the black-white gap is caused by blacks. The black-white income and wealth gaps are huge. Part of this has to be a legacy of slavery and ill-treatment by the greater society. You can't segregate people into worse homes, in worse neighborhoods, with less opportunity for education, jobs, and wealth accumulation, then expect the bulk of the population to perform as well as those who have not had these disadvantages. That said, the heaviest forms of discrimination ended in the 1960s. While disadvantaged, climbing out of such a hole is not impossible. Have blacks been putting their noses to the grindstone and digging themselves out? If we look at black behavior from the 1960s through today and see behaviors that clearly damage their ability to attain economic success, then we can't blame the entire economic gap on racism and discrimination. The following discusses large and problematic segments of blacks, but not all black people. There are plenty of responsible blacks, but on average, they have more children out of wedlock, more children raised by single mothers, commit more crimes, are in gangs, commit more murders, often don't focus on their studies to achieve academically, won't take the jobs available, spend on flashy items rather than saving, and live for the short term rather than doing what's necessary for long-run success. Ghetto culture also includes tendencies toward violence and misogyny. These behaviors have decreased the economic success of blacks. So, when we're talking about reparations, I'm not for taxing or inflating or indebting or raising opportunity costs 
to give money to people who fucked themselves. Paying reparations with the goal of equalizing the wealth gap would be asking for all Americans to pay for people who don't take care of their children, commit crimes, and live for the day rather than working hard toward long-term success. Thus, if we're going to have reparations, the amount should be far less than the total wealth gap. We shouldn't lump all blacks into one group culturally. The most destructive culture is the thuggish ghetto street culture. About 20-28% to of blacks belong to this culture. The rest of blacks are hardworking, middle, or working class. The 20-28% to are mostly not in school, are out of work, have few skills, have contempt for low-wage jobs, and they survive through illegal trading and crime. Many belong to gangs. Some street blacks have reported that hanging out on the street, dressing well, banging women, doing drugs, and music were just too addicting and alluring for them to focus on school. They've also said that white youths respect them for their cool culture, and seeing successful black athletes and musicians encourages such fun behaviors. Social psychologists have found that young blacks have high levels of self-esteem, and this isn't connected to school performance. The additional cultural habits, more common among whites, of turning off the fun and instead studying or working isn't prevalent in street culture. Many young blacks are taught to identify as black men, but don't have father figures because they have no dads. Instead, they identify with what they see in the culture, sports and entertainment figures. That's not ideal because most people won't succeed in those businesses. Also, they're often identifying with violent rap. According to surveys, black men from troubled areas blame themselves and their own actions more than racism or white people. They also declare all the appropriate norms about family, marriage, education, work, individualism, and personal responsibility, but they fail to execute them. Even in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, only a minority of people are violent. Thus, it's not true that entire neighborhoods of black youth live the lives of violent thugs. Studies on the effect of believing in a street code find that, controlling for other factors, such beliefs have minor associations with offending, suggesting that incorporating this aspect of street culture into one's beliefs may increase criminal behavior. One gang member said, quote, I grew up as looking for somebody to love me in the streets. You know, my mother was always working. My father used to be doing his thing, so I was by myself. I'm here looking for some love. I ain't got nobody to give me love, so I went to the streets to find love. Studies make clear that a child's academic and economic success are greatly increased if raised in a two-parent household. 72% of whites, 82% of Asians, and 55% of Latino children are raised in two-parent households. 31% of blacks are. That's a devastating statistic. Black mothers are too busy working to properly rear their children, and too many black dads aren't involved at all. In such a situation, what do you expect to happen to the children? Some will persevere, sure, but many will give into the streets or not learn how to work hard or focus on their studies. Blacks have had a high rate of illegitimate children for a long time, going back to freed slaves in the mid-1800s, but the rates exploded in the 1900s. Some claim this explosion happened in the 1960s, but it probably happened earlier. The percentage of births to unmarried women increased in the 60s, but this number includes a reduction 
in the married couple's birth rate, if we look at just the single women birth rate, that rate increased more during the 40s and 50s than the 60s. Some blame welfare programs for incentivizing such behavior, but studies interviewing people on the ground and the dates of welfare expansions compared to unmarried birth rate increases don't line up. So we can't simply blame welfare incentives. I talk about this more in another piece. Ethnographic studies reveal cultural changes in black communities that were happening around the country in the 1900s involving a more relaxed attitude about sex. These coincided with the availability of birth control. So, rather than being expected to marry an impregnated woman, men could say it was her fault for not using proper birth control. The social pressure to go and raise these children was decreased. However, illegitimate births didn't explode in other races to the same extent. So, it can't just be changes in countrywide cultural mores that caused out-of-wedlock births. It's hard to say why blacks responded so poorly, but it is likely some combination of culture and poor neighborhood conditions that facilitated this and other bad behaviors. Many black women are in a shitty situation. Most men around them are unemployed and are likely to remain so, or even worse, killed or imprisoned. So, Women don't have many options for good fathers and husbands. Women then have to work to support their children and don't have the time or energy to act like mothers, so the children are vulnerable to being raised by the street. Another mother's substitute may be TV. Young black Americans watch more electronic media per day than whites. Education and income narrow that gap, but not completely. The best predictor of how much TV a child watches is race. There have been a lot of attempts at welfare programs, yet people are often unable to use this to advance themselves. In 1987, philanthropist George Weiss guaranteed 112 inner-city Philadelphian 6th graders free college as long as they stayed away from drugs, children out of wedlock, and crimes. His help included tutors, workshops, after-school and summer programs, and counselors. Unfortunately, 45 of the kids didn't finish high school. Among the boys, 19 became felons, and over half of the girls had children. Both of these outcomes happened before adulthood. If even when offered good help, such a low percentage of children succeed, isn't this because there's something wrong with the culture? One claim of a mechanism in which black culture inhibits educational and therefore economic advancement is through young black men perceiving those that study hard or succeed academically as acting white, and therefore make fun of or shun those who do such things as not part of the black in-group. This would discourage good school performance, and some blacks would then miss out on the career advantages this gives. The acting white theory probably isn't true, or has a much weaker impact than proponents claim. There are, of course, antidotes of such a thing happening. However, to a certain extent, those who do well academically are made fun of or given shit by every race. I can attest to this myself, as I went to a mostly white school, got good grades, and at times heard negative or annoying comments about my superior performance. For the acting white mechanism to have real power, the effect on black students resulting from attitudes and actions based on perceiving others as acting white would have to be greater than the effects on non-black children of similar 
anti-educational success attitudes and actions. And in both cases, just because some people make comments doesn't mean students act upon them. My studying levels didn't change. There have been attempts to find a scientific link between race, beliefs about acting white, social stigma, and school performance. And there isn't support for the theory. A 2006 paper by Fryer did claim a link, but the numbers don't add up. His data showed students' popularity for each grade point average, the highest of these being 4.0. The most popular black students had a GPA of 3.5, and those with 4.0s were about equal to those with 3.0s in number of friends. Those with less than a 2.5 GPA had the least amount of friends. It's not clear at all from this data that there is a penalty for acting white. If anything, the data shows that the better one's school performance, the more friends one has, except at the very highest performance, where there is only a small dip that still leaves them with more friends than the poor school performers. Other studies don't find a social disadvantage for black students who excel in school and find no difference in the rate of high school completion between blacks and whites once family circumstances are controlled for. A study based on self-reports of popularity and how much students value academics concluded that high-achieving black students were more popular than other black students. Self-reports can be inaccurate, but it's not clear why they'd be inaccurate in such a way to produce this outcome. Either way, the acting white theory again fails to find evidence, and effort variables based on school records have results similar to surveys. Other studies also fail to find such evidence, finding instead that blacks claim to value academic performance and expect it to help their future, and their effort, as well as their parents' effort, is about the same as whites when one controls for family circumstances. Some of these studies indicate more pro-educational attitudes among blacks than whites. Research on bullying matches the other data and is consistent across races. That is, those with poor academic performance get bullied the most, and those with the very top academic performance get bullied more than those with just good performance. The results are consistent across races, so there doesn't appear to be a special acting white phenomena that is greater than anti-nerd attitudes among all races. One theory is that what matters more than simply academic achievement is that achievement lining up with some other socioeconomic status. So, both within and across race, some students will resent kids perceived as wealthier, who also do better in school. While there certainly is a phenomenon of smart blacks being accused by other blacks of acting white, a variety of evidence supports the idea that accusations of acting white have no greater effect than accusations of being a nerd or some similar attack that is common among all races. Thus, the acting white theory doesn't help one make a cultural argument for an explanation of poor black performance. There is a lot of research showing that family characteristics and school factors predict blacks' academic skills and achievement. These effects start very early in children's academic careers, so the structure and behavior of families, as well as the quality of schools, are very important. Another cultural theory for black struggles with education is that black parents and children don't develop as many school-related skills and habits because they are isolated from the rest of society where they could learn such skills and habits. So, rather than blacks not valuing school, 
they are not enculturated in the best methods for achieving success. This would mean whites not wanting to marry blacks and residential segregation are more the cause of educational culture than a rejection of education. There is empirical evidence finding that black exposure to whites increases school success and isolation decreases it, implying that blacks can learn the cultural habits and attitudes if they are not isolated. If it's true that familial and neighborhood factors combined with a lack of cultural skill due to isolation are the causes of blacks failing to get education, then academic failure may not be a great mitigation on the cause for reparations because the failure would be largely caused by the environment, which was partially created by previous discrimination and racism. That said, street culture, violence, teen pregnancy, and single motherhood certainly don't help a child's education, and we can't blame all of that on white people. The black unemployment rate has been double that of whites for decades. Only once has the black unemployment rate fallen below 8%, and in only four years has the white unemployment rate been at or above 8%. Research on black men finds them saying they won't take jobs even when they are available, some claiming the reason being they don't want to get up too early. Other research finds black men saying they'll take whatever job they can, but they also say wages aren't high enough to take specific jobs or quit jobs once they start them when problems begin. Often street blacks won't take the available jobs, and immigrants take them instead. The cause here isn't necessarily laziness, but could be a lack of norms for men to have jobs with regular hours. Another issue is that black men often have an out to gain money without entering the traditional labor market, the illegal drug trade. Unfortunately, this negative culture feeds in on itself. You have kids being raised in a community where adult men often don't have regular jobs, where making money from illegal activities is common, where everyone expects opportunity to be limited so there are not the expectations of people to hold normal jobs. Women grow up surrounded by men with unstable jobs and who expect sex without responsibility for the children. Women are then more likely to be single mothers, which increases the difficulty of instilling in the children good attitudes and behaviors towards work and education. This new generation, being raised only by a mother, and where many adults are single mothers or unemployed men, then don't have the role models to model their lives after, continuing the cycle. I do question whether rejecting certain jobs is a special black problem or an American problem, a problem for those whose parents are not immigrants. Those of us whose families have been in the country for more than a generation expect a certain quality of a job, conditions not too hard, good pay, or slash and to like the job. Whites have the opportunities to meet such expectations. Many blacks don't. So, it may be unfair to single out blacks for these attitudes when often the job opportunities they have are for shittier jobs. If whites felt that they had no hope of ever having a decent job, they might be more likely to decline jobs as well. Saving not spending is a key to wealth. You can find several black financial advisors, ideologues, or motivational speakers of some kind acknowledging that blacks have problems overspending and encouraging their fellows to resist the call of shopping on frivolous things and to instead save. According to Boyce Watkins, 
the white-black wealth gap could be closed by blacks saving $5 a day for 20 years. I don't think this quite adds up. It seems to me that it'd be more like $16.5 a day or $6,022.50 a year. Either way, the point is, if blacks up their savings rates while whites keep their savings the same, that alone would reduce or eliminate the black-white wealth gap. Doing this may be harder than it seems, but the point is, saving habits matter. Blacks tend to be more ignorant about financial literacy than whites and about making basic spending choices. In some areas, black parents are busy trying to survive. They teach their kids how to survive, which isn't what white parents teach. White parents teach financial literacy. If some aspects of some blacks' cultures are worse for economic development, where did such cultures come from? Economist Thomas Sowell has written a book about culture, including black culture. He says that what we think of as ghetto black culture today actually came from the Scottish Highlands, then moved to the American South before blacks took it from southern whites and the culture moved with blacks to northern segregated communities. British Highlanders and southern whites have mostly been acculturated away from this culture, but it has stuck with blacks. The Highlands used to be a violent place where people couldn't expect to live long. In such an environment, it's advantageous to take joys where you have them and worry less about long-term planning. Here, one's reputation is what gave you status and protected you from attacks, so people had to be willing to violently respond to slights to maintain their reputation. Success and status were also shown by gaudy displays, and there were not economic opportunities for long-term work. Attitudes were more focused on short-term fun and only working when money was needed. Whites moving to the American South brought this culture with them. There are many foreign and northern accounts of how hard it was to work with southern businessmen because they'd get distracted and not put much of their efforts into their work. Many of the successful southern businesses were run by foreigners or northerners. Southern farmers and ranchers often did just enough to keep them alive rather than the northern habit of maximizing what they could produce. For example, the South had a lot of cattle, but little dairy. They didn't put in the work to produce dairy. Southern dairy production was usually managed by foreigners. This attitude wasn't simply laziness. People in this culture liked being active, but the activities they used their energies on were hunting, dancing, and fighting. It takes a certain attitude to actually do menial work. Southerners spent a lot of money and were often in debt. They wouldn't do additional tasks to make more money and would rather pay someone to do additional work. This culture involves less reading, more openly sexual talk, women dressed more revealingly, rape not being as severely punished, and more sex overall. Even church styles and language were taken from the Highland culture. A lot of ways of speech that we think of as black are descendant from the Highlands. The modern world requires focused attention on gaining skills and the ability to work scheduled hours. This culture surviving in black communities is a large explanation for their failed economic outcomes after the 1960s, when formal barriers to opportunity were torn down. That's what Solwell says anyways. He doesn't do a good job explaining why this culture survived in black communities, but not the white south or the Scottish highlands. He discusses the downsides to identity politics, and too great a focus on political leaders. 
but that doesn't seem like it really explains the continuation of this culture. He blames family disintegration on the welfare state, but the dates and ethnographic studies don't seem to support that. He says the softening of police enforcement, a loosening of social morals, and the welfare state all affected blacks poorly and have helped maintain that culture. Do some communities suffer from ghetto culture because they were unable to escape the tendencies of Scottish Highlanders? Or is it because they live in segregated, poor areas with little opportunity surrounded by a society that has shit on them as less than human for hundreds of years? In his study of blacks in Philadelphia, the scholar W.E.B. Du Bois demonstrated in 1899 that ghetto culture began before the 20th century. He noted unfair discrimination by employers and police, but also the horrible behavior of blacks, drunkenness, crime, and unmarried mothers. He criticized both the white discrimination and the black behavior. Similarly, historian Roger Lane described such Philadelphian culture starting in the mid-1800s. Discrimination over the decades, as well as being raised in poor, segregated areas, makes some black males feel like they have no value. This contributes to, or helps maintain, Scottish honor culture. With no value, they have to protect whatever sources of self-esteem they have. This facilitates fighting over stupid things, including simply being looked at wrong. Children have to be socialized away from these behaviors and attitudes. It doesn't completely make sense to pigeonhole these problems as black. People of other races, including white, also show similar behaviors and attitudes, and some whites are also disconnected from society. Some poor white women have children out of wedlock and show the same desperate attitudes of black women in similar situations. Statistics for crime, unemployment, and disconnected populations tend to go up and down together for whites and blacks, although the numbers for blacks are consistently higher. Further doubt on the black culture argument is created when one considers labor-slash-economic factors that seem to affect blacks and whites similarly. Blacks were hit particularly hard by globalization, but whites were hit too. And in white communities, hit hard, we see increases in out-of-wedlock birth, alcoholism, drug overdose, and suicide. Does it make sense to create a cultural explanation for this? or just the straightforward results of a lack of economic opportunities and success. To the extent that you see poor attitudes, some of that may be caused by poor options in the first place. If I have no real option for education or a high-paying job, I may have a poor attitude toward work. Does current black ghetto culture have more to do with Scottish Highlanders from hundreds of years ago or growing up in a poor, crime-riddled neighborhood. If we want to hang our hats on culture, we can't ignore what created cultures, and that it isn't so easy to just throw off a culture, especially when the effects of culturally driven behaviors and attitudes may have already greatly affected someone's life before he even reaches adulthood. A weakness of blaming culture is that culture doesn't come out of nowhere. While maybe some aspect of ghetto and black culture came from the British Highlands, certainly some of it also came from hundreds of years of slavery followed by a hundred years of heavy official discrimination, followed by growing up in poor areas with a lack of resources and opportunity. Whether this created a poor culture or continued the Highland culture doesn't really matter. 
to the extent that the bad culture itself was created or continued by the results of heavy discrimination, culture isn't an explanation separate from discrimination. Exposure to neighborhood violence and lead is associated with black boys' incarceration as adults and is associated with lower income relative to parents and poor black girls becoming teenage mothers. Inner city poor lack human capital and are segregated from the labor market. Over time, demand for manual labor is declining. Their social environment reinforces their economic detachment. Segregation makes the inner city poor physically further away from employment opportunities. There are few new businesses generated in inner city communities. Segregation matters. Ghettos are environmentally and chemically toxic with pollutants that may affect children's development and cause them to be more violent and criminal. Overcrowding causes social problems. Segregation excludes blacks from the cultural knowledge and capital of mainstream middle class as well as social networks that could, that could facilitate mobility. Once in violence-filled ghettos, police see blacks in the community as the enemy and have trouble avoiding racial profiling. Neighborhood effects on psychology and economic success have been demonstrated in economic studies. Bad neighborhood factors, including punitive policing, lower social cohesion, and less collective efficacy, are related to worse developmental outcomes. Controlling for other factors, both self-perceived racism and institutional racial discrimination, like segregation and redlining, are associated with worse health status among ethnic group members, including mental health. Income isn't everything, even for people of the same income level. On average, children in counties with less concentrated poverty, less income inequality, better schools, a larger share of two-parent families, and lower crime rates have better outcomes. Boys are especially affected by heavily segregated areas. Black economics improve during stretches of good economic times, then gets hit hard during recessions. So, it appears that blacks can claw out of poverty, but the downswings of the economy knock them back down. In good economic times, even less advantaged workers are in demand. Studies have shown that young black men are less likely to be offered jobs than white men with equivalent resumes, and even young white men with criminal records have an equal or better chance of being hired than young black men with no record. This supports that blacks are disadvantaged, and why they require good economic times for the demand of labor to reach parts of their population. Grocery stores are often not located in black neighborhoods. Residents have to travel farther to get fresh, healthy food. They often don't have cars, and more traveling cuts into their budgets. A study found that living in a severely disadvantaged neighborhood reduced a child's verbal ability by an amount equal to a year or more of schooling. Also, when society forced blacks together, we should have expected their dialects to hold more because they aren't integrated. It's not clear how much black culture really does devalue things that lead to economic success. A variety of stats and studies find that when sociodemographics are controlled for, blacks and whites have similar attitudes and behaviors. So, it could be a lack of wealth and living in bad neighborhoods that causes the bad attitudes and behaviors rather than culture being an independent cause. Studies find that when a student has similar academic achievement and family background, blacks are more likely to attend college than whites. Studies find that whites' better educational attainment and college attendance disappear 
from parental income, education, geographical location, background inequalities, or sociodemographic status are controlled for. Blacks and whites who both received parental financial support for higher education resulted in about two-thirds of them gaining a college degree, and just over a quarter gaining a graduate degree. Thus, receiving parental financial help creates no racial gap in higher education. Multiple researchers have found that blacks gain more schooling than whites whose families have roughly equal resources. According to some studies, the black-white savings rate gap goes away when income is controlled for. The two races also have about the same rate of return. At comparable levels of income, whites have been found to spend 1.3 times more than blacks. After controlling for socioeconomics and demographics, a study found no significant difference between black and white family unsecured debt. Controlling for household income, parent education, and parent occupational status, blacks get more years of schooling and gain more credentials than whites. A potentially misleading issue with these stats and studies is that, sure, once controlling for socio-demographics, blacks seem to have good cultural attitudes. But a reason many blacks may have low wealth, income, employment, and education is because of poor culture. So, we can't just look at the cultures of those blacks that are succeeding and then claim that this means the reason other blacks are poor is not because of culture. Because their socioeconomic differences may be caused by cultural differences in the first place. Black parents with less resources are more inclined to financially help their adult children's educations than whites who also have low resources. The median black wealth of parents who help their child's adult education is 25000 That for white parents is 168000 and the median white wealth of those who did not help their adult children's education was 74000 Many accounts find that inheritance, bequest, and still-living transfers make up more of the black-white wealth gap than any other indicator. This has been used to argue that the source of the wealth gap is structural, not behavioral. Because a reason white parents have so much more to give than black parents is due to historical discrimination. During life transfers allow young adults to buy wealth generating assets and skills like a home, business, or education. Investigations into financial literacy find that the white-black gap is about half explained by differences in individual factors and neighborhood socioeconomic status. This indicates that while factors like wealth and income explain part of this particular gap, they don't explain everything. Even when blacks do the right thing, they have less wealth than whites. Comparing blacks to whites with the same level of education, whites have far more wealth. Comparing whites and blacks who have the same level of income, again, whites have far more wealth. Comparing based on employment status, whites still have far more wealth. Raising children in two-parent homes is important, but even single white women with no children have more wealth than single black women with no children and married black women have far less wealth than married white women. Single white women have more wealth than black white men, and a lack of wealth may facilitate a breakdown in the family. White households with a single parent have more than double the net worth of two-parent black households. At every level of education, the black unemployment rate about doubles the white rate. 
Whites who have dropped out of high school have lower unemployment rates than blacks with some college or an associate's degree. Median wealth for black families with a college degree is two-thirds that of white families whose head didn't finish high school. While college does help blacks improve their wealth, it doesn't quickly close the wealth gap. This is the same with income more generally. Whites with low income still have more wealth than blacks with high income. And unemployed whites have more wealth than full-time employed blacks. One study found that differences in education, family structure, income shops, and inheritances are related to the wealth gap, but are not particularly important. They conclude that structural, systemic, or historical factors are to blame. College choice, major choice, the need to borrow more to attend college, employment, and employment advancement options differ by race and could affect the wealth gap. The article says we don't fully understand why education helps wealth more for whites than blacks. Controlling for other factors, education helps blacks economically less than it does whites. Additionally, positive relationships between higher family socioeconomic status and things like educational achievement, mental health, and physical health are weaker for blacks than whites. Blacks are more likely to take on student loans and gain more loan debt, as well as more likely to drop out due to financial burdens. This list of information makes it seem like blacks do care about education and preparing themselves for the workplace just as much as whites, but that they are in such a hole that they don't get as much out of the preparation. This implies that it isn't simply culture, but having less wealth in the first place. However, many of these statistics are snapshots. They look at black versus white wealth at one point in time. Sure, even blacks with high incomes have low wealth compared to many whites, but that is a snapshot. Income should work to increase wealth over time. A study simulated what black wealth would be if blacks had higher incomes than they really did over decades and found that the income gap is the primary driver of the wealth gap. This implies that if we get into a situation where blacks start having high incomes, they should also get a lot of wealth. The size of this dynamic effect over time dwarfs that of inheritances or better returns from capital gains. A problem with too much focus on inheritances in explaining the wealth gap is that few blacks or whites receive large inheritances. Estimates for how much of the wealth gap is due directly to inheritances range from 5 to 20%. None of these stats or studies can deny that a dark ghetto culture exists but they do show that blacks value things like hard work and education, and that on average, they get less out of these things. So, we shouldn't exaggerate the effects of culture. We can attempt to gauge the long-term effects of discrimination versus culture by comparing blacks to other discriminated against groups. A common question is, if legacies of discrimination made it so hard to claw out of the ghettos after civil rights, then how come Asians did it? Similarly, Catholics, the Irish, Italians, Jews, and Caribbean immigrants all face prejudice, and their populations, on average, are doing pretty well. The differences are explained by worse segregation and discrimination being heaped on the descendants of slaves, pre-existing skills and wealth that other groups could utilize, positive selection on those able and willing to immigrate, and cultures more conducive to economic growth. So, 
The success of other discriminated against groups is yet another mitigation against the case for reparations because part of the success is based on the actions of these groups that look better than the actions of American slave descendants. But it doesn't destroy the case because the American descendants of slaves had it worse in terms of discrimination and segregation. And unlike immigrants, slaves were brought over against their will. For immigrants, the best or most ambitious were selected through the immigration process. But for slaves, a grab bag of the population was taken. We shouldn't expect such a selection to compete with those hungry enough to make it through the immigration system and intentionally cross an ocean to get here. And freed slaves had absolutely nothing. While many immigrants could pool together capital or brought skills with them. We can't look at the black-white gaps and blame them all on racism and discrimination because since the 1960s, blacks have behaved in ways that are not conducive to economic success. There's no doubt that a child growing up in a ghetto is at a huge disadvantage. There's no doubt that poor schools will have less success than wealthy schools. But the level of unemployment, academic failure, crime, violence, and fatherless children cannot be explained by this alone. We're talking about students unable to freaking read, neighborhoods being controlled by gangs, and men fathering several children without any intent of being a father. It doesn't automatically follow that people turn to such actions at such high rates because they have less opportunities. A distorted culture has something to do with it. If a reason why this ghetto culture survived is because blacks were discriminated against and segregated into shitty areas, making gaining and maintaining wealth very difficult, then at least part of the cultural explanation is still the legacy of American society shitting on blacks. And the, and the cultural explanation only mitigates the call for reparations a little bit. In the end, at the very least, we can conclude that some portion of the lack of black wealth is caused by unproductive black behavior and culture, and this weakens the case for reparations, or at least for a massive payout that instantly closes the black-white wealth gap.